It would be good to keep the passage open. Let me pray. Uh, Dear Lord, as we uh, come to your word this morning, uh, we pray that you give us open hearts and open ears to hear what you want us to hear. Uh, Lord, help me uh, to be faithful as I preach, that I proclaim your word truthfully, and by your spirit convict us. Amen. One thing I'm really good at is justifying my failure to do things. So uh, to use a a superficial example, each morning uh, I leave a trail of chaos in the kitchen. So yeah, there's the butter and the milk and the marmalade, Um, sometimes a little bit of a smear down the the bench top. Uh, Then there's my mug and the plate and the cutlery. Uh, But you've got to understand uh, my dilemma, because Sarah does get a little frustrated, uh, because, you know, obviously when the, the toast pops up, you know, you've, you've got to have it hot, right? You've got to get the butter on quick. You've got to get the marmalade on quick. I mean, that's a gimme. Uh, so there's no time to do it then. And then after, well, then, I, you know, my, my mind's got going as I've been having breakfast. And so I've really got to get on with the day. And, you know, I've got to do important things like write a sermon about love your neighbour. I do appreciate the irony. Yeah, but there are other times, perhaps, you know, when, you're, when I'm driving down the road and I see someone broken down on the side of the road, you know, and I think to myself, well, actually, I've got somewhere really important that I need to be. And let's face it, everyone's got mobile phones these days, and whatever I can do, the NRMA will be able to do infinitely better. So I'm sure it's better if I leave it to them. Then there are those opportunities to do good, but where there's, there's no sort of prior expectation to do good. No, no one is waiting on you to do good. You know, so it might be you know, calling a family member or a parent or a friend uh, with no particular agenda or reason, just to call and encourage them. Uh, or it might be sort of moving outside your, your sort of comfort space in the morning, you know, this morning in your conversations over morning tea and going and chatting to someone who you don't know or who's standing by themselves. But there's no expectation to do that. No one is waiting for you to do that. And there's always someone who is better at it than than me. And so I'll I'll just leave it to them because that'll be far less awkward. I think, when I think about all of my excuses, and I've got thousands, you know, I could just keep on going forever. Uh, But when I think about all the excuses that we make, I I think they they fit into perhaps uh, one or or multiple of of five categories. And so I'm going to read them out. And as I do, uh, in your own head, you don't need, this isn't confession. uh, Yeah, perhaps think, you know, what are the ones that you gravitate to most often? So my number one is, it's not my problem. Number two, I don't have time. Number three, fear. You know, fear of consequences, fear of what might happen to me. And then we get down to the ones which we really don't want to admit to. So things like, there's nothing in it for me. Or perhaps, I really don't like them. If you're anything like me, it's probably one or multiple of those reasons. But in the end, we do what we want to do. So if we really want something, we do everything in our power to make it happen. 
And if we don't want to do something or if we don't value something, then we justify why it isn't possible or it isn't reasonable. What we're going to see in this passage today is that loving your neighbour is unconditional. Loving your neighbour is inconvenient and loving your neighbour is costly. And that's not a a sermon outline that doesn't sort of shape the way the sermon's going to go, but it is an acknowledgement that loving our neighbour is hard. And so in our passage, we have a, a Jewish expert in the law, and he comes to Jesus with a genuinely good question. Unfortunately, he's not actually coming looking for an answer. He wants to test Jesus and see if this, you know, teacher from God really does understand God's law. But irrespective of his motivation, it's a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's not a unique question. Uh, Later on in Luke, a rich young man will come and ask a very similar question. But in this particular example, Jesus then turns back to this teacher in the law and says, well, what do you say? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So his reply is this great summary of all the Old Testament, of all the words in the Old Testament into sort of 15 words or less. And he draws it from two particular passages, one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus 19. As we continue uh, in our passage, we know that it's going to focus on that Leviticus passage about what does it mean to love our neighbour. But we've also got to be careful not to gloss over the first half of his answer because it's a good answer. God calls us to love him with every fibre of our being. You know, it's not just an intellectual assent that I philosophically believe in a God. And it's not just blind, unthinking faith. So he has made himself known in the order of the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. But more significantly, God has made himself known in history. So he made himself known to Israel as he rescues them out of Egypt. He makes himself known through the prophets of the Old Testament. And most significantly, of course, he makes himself known in Jesus, who comes declaring the kingdom of God, but also demonstrating his power. And so he demonstrates it in his miracles, he demonstrates it in the resurrection, and he demonstrates his power when he returns to the Father to sit beside him in the heavenly realms. But all of that understanding is worthless if we do not actually love God. And even that is only possible because of the grace God shows us. It's only by his Holy Spirit that he actually opens our eyes and convicts us of what is true. And that's what we pray, isn't it? We pray that God will convict us of what is true. And in this present age, we will not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. We are going to have a a sin-bound expression of that. It won't be a perfect expression. But we look forward to the day when it will be 
when our dwelling place will be with God and it will be unmarred by the consequences of sin. But as Christians, our love for God and our desire to express that love becomes the foundation for all our moral action. So Christopher Hitchens uh, was one of the more vocal new atheists about five years ago. Uh, he was a contemporary of uh, a guy called Richard Dawkins, uh, who you might have heard of. Uh, he's since passed away, but he often put out this challenge in interviews. Name one moral action performed by a believer that could not have been done by a non-believer. No Christian has ever been able to answer that question. Well, the short answer is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Of course, Christopher Hitchens doesn't believe that is a virtuous uh, or valid moral response. But that's kind of the, the problem, isn't it? That without God, we have no objective framework to call anything right or wrong. But as Christians, as we love God, that then shapes how we love others. That's how that brings meaning to love your neighbour. So to give this expert of the law every credit, he's given a good answer. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And you can imagine the expert of the law is is kind of, you know, a little bit surprised at how agreeable Jesus is. I mean, after all, he's come to, to test Jesus. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jesus is saying, yeah, great answer. Uh, but, you know, he, he's come to test Jesus, never give up, never surrender. And so he tries again. And so if his first question was all about, you know, what does the Old Testament say? Then his second question is a bit more technical. What does the Old Testament mean? Verse 29, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? So both our expert in the law and Jesus agree that we should love our neighbour. And so the next question is, well, who is it? It's not a particularly generous question, really, is it? It's sort of, you know, what is the bare minimum that I must do to obey the law? But it's still a relevant question because the passage that our expert in the law was quoting from Leviticus, and this is the passage that Jesus affirms, is all about how Jewish people should treat Jewish, Jewish people. So to put the verse in context, this is what it says. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbour's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone amongst your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. So the temptation for the expert in the law, and perhaps the crowd listening to this parable, and perhaps to us as well, is to try to limit the scope of who is my neighbour. 
You know, there are rules around this. You know, perhaps it only applies to people in my family. Or perhaps it applies just to uh, Christians. So the original verse was about Jewish people loving Jewish people. Maybe this is just about Christians loving Christians. Or maybe it's just people in our community who are like me. Because that's convenient, isn't it? It's always easier to love people who are like me. And so in response, Jesus tells this parable about a man who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And given the context, everyone would have assumed that the man we're talking about is a Jewish man. And as he's travelling along, he's beaten by robbers, stripped bare and left for dead. He is completely destitute. Like there's no debate about this guy needing help. Okay, he is lying there, you know, an inch from death. Fortunately for him, a priest comes along. So here is a man who is committed to honouring God and following the law. And so when he comes along, what does he do? He actively does nothing. He crosses to the other side of the road, nice safe distance, and passes by. And then another God-fearing man comes along. This time he's a Levite. Now the Levites were the tribe of Israel set apart to you know, uh, manage and lead the religious life of Israel, so in the synagogues and the temple. But again, this upstanding citizen crosses to the other side of the road and passes by. So here we have two upstanding Jewish citizens, people who you would expect to help, failing to do so, failing to help their fellow brother Jew. Sin isn't just about doing the wrong thing. It's also about failing to do the right thing. Uh, And actually we say that in one of our prayers of confession uh, in our Anglican prayer book where it says, we have left undone what we ought to have done and we have done what we ought not to have done. And this isn't just a Christian principle, it's a Jewish principle. But perhaps thinking along the same lines as our expert in the law, the priest and the Levi could justify what they've done by concluding that this man who's half dead on the side of the road isn't actually Jewish at all. You know, perhaps he isn't a brother and therefore I have no responsibility or obligation to help him. And if that was their thinking, then they should have known the rest of the Old Testament law Like, for example, where it says, The foreigner residing amongst you must be treated as your native born. Love them as you would love yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So we sin when we reject God's word and fail to do what we should do. And and we sin when we do the wrong thing. But it's even worse when we take God's word and then conveniently twist it to justify our own sinfulness. 
So in this particular context, it's about limiting the scope of our responsibility to love our neighbour. So to put it back to, to Sarah, I could say, well, Sarah is my wife. Uh, technically, therefore, she's not my neighbour. And therefore, really, I have no obligation at all to you know, look after that squalor in the kitchen. But there is another verse... And that says, wives, submit to your husbands. (laughs) We could get a good stoning right now, couldn't we? (laughs) You can see what we can do, though, can't you? It's pretty easy. We conveniently pick and choose the bits of the Word of God that say what we wanted to say. And so quickly, we're good at pointing the finger at someone else and conveniently justifying ourselves almost in the same breath. That's kind of what these people, that's kind of what this expert in the law is trying to do. Perhaps that's what this Levite and the priest were trying to do. They try to use enough truth to justify sin. And so now we come to our Samaritan friend who's also travelling between Jericho and Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, this parable takes a very distasteful turn. Because if you're a Jewish person listening to this parable, then you're probably already pretty annoyed that the priests and the Levite, good upstanding citizens, are being portrayed as the villains of the story. And now it gets even worse because a Samaritan becomes the hero. So Israelites consider themselves to be the pure blood chosen people of God. They're heirs to the promise and faithful to God's word. On the other hand, the Samaritans have squandered their inheritance. They were once representing 10 of the tribes of Israel, 10 of the 12. And then uh, the, the nation split. Uh, They started to have their own sacred places, their own worship. Uh, Then the Assyrians came along and conquered them, and then they started to intermarry. And so by the time we get to this point in history, they're kind of the the half-blood, disowned, disavowed second cousin. And so words really cannot quite capture just how much Israelites dislike Samaritans. If they had their choice, if you're an Israelite living in the north and you have to go south, then you would do everything in your power not to pass through Samaria. And it's not about safety. It's about that they've just got this unbridled contempt for them as a people. And so now in our story, we have a Samaritan as the hero. So he sees this half-dead man on the side of the road. He bandages him up, he puts him on a donkey, he takes him to an inn and he stays there the night. And then he goes even further. He pays the equivalent of two days' wages to the innkeeper to look after this bloke. And he says, when I come back, I will pay you whatever else is owing. At this stage, if you're a Jewish person hearing this parable then you've got to concede that this guy is exceptional. This guy has gone beyond 
any reasonable expectation of the law. So this story is supposed to be about who is my neighbour, but it also gives us a picture of what it looks like to be a neighbour. And it comes at a cost, doesn't it? You know, whatever this man was travelling to do, whatever perhaps business he was looking to conduct, that now has to wait for another day. If he was on his way home, then his family's going to need to wait another day. Uh, if he was hoping to conduct business where he would make some money, well, now this has come at a genuine financial cost, a genuine sacrifice to himself where there is really no opportunity or expectation that he will get anything in return. Mercy isn't about doing the bare minimum. It's about going beyond what is reasonable for the sake of the other. And even more powerfully in this parable, it's it's directed to a man who's supposed to be his enemy. So there's no limit to the question, who is my neighbour? There's no convenient fine print. There are no exceptions. Who is my neighbour? The short answer is everyone. I think the temptation uh, when we read a passage like this is, you know, to think about all the situations in our life where it's just not that simple to love other people, where there are real issues of unresolved sin. And we can use all of those thoughts and all of those situations to hijack us and to perhaps put off what this passage is saying. But we can't let that happen. Because whatever our circumstances, whatever sin needs to be dealt with, we start with the position of love our neighbour as ourselves. So in the words of Jesus earlier in chapter 6, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And so Jesus goes on to finish this parable by asking This man, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And for this expert in the law, I'm not sure if you could stomach saying the word Samaritan, but it can at least say the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus concludes, go and do likewise. Let me pray. Dear Lord, as we reflect on your word today, uh, to love you uh, with all our heart, soul, strength and mind, as we reflect on loving our neighbour as ourselves, Lord, we pray that in the strength of your Holy Spirit, that you enable us to go and do likewise. Amen.